The film is like a package of assorted chicken parts that can't be assembled back into something approximating the shape of an actual animal. There's way too much of some stuff while certain essentials are missing entirely. Allison Wilmore of New York Magazine slash Vulture with a harsh review. All the reviews have been harsh when it comes to Hillbilly Elegy. Ron Howard's new film currently on Netflix. The book was recommended by my buddy Anish Shroff. I think it's an excellent book. Uh, J.D. Vance is the guy who wrote it. And now we have the movie version of it. And the movie stinks. <laughs> I'll tell you why it does and get into all the other matters of it. However... We have other good news, which is that David McKenna is sensational. He is the screenwriter of, among others, American History X and Blow. He's in a new movie called Embattled Out, and it is available right now on Apple TV, YouTube, uh, basically wherever you get uh, these types of movies, streaming platforms. Uh, it's excellent. UFC tale starring Stephen Dorff, father-son story. It's funny. It's gripping. It's thrilling. And we're going to talk to David McKenna. He's not only got stories, but his new film, and Dorff is fantastic in this film. But he also talks about American History X, the battle between Tony Kaye, Edward Norton, very famously disputed about the film, Blow, and working with Ray Liotta, Johnny Depp, adapting that book, and also why the movie Bully, he actually took his name off the picture, put a pseudonym on it. I've never actually met a writer who's, you know what, I'm taking my name off the picture and actually did it. So we'll ask him about that. Uh, other movies to discuss, The Crudes, A New Age, of course, I took my boys for Thanksgiving, and... Uh, the free preview right now on DirecTV this Thanksgiving weekend over at like, all their movie channels. So, of course, I gorged and I watched Moon, which I've always wanted to see. Sam Rockwell, a terrific actor. I finally saw it. So we're going to talk about Moon. And uh, Mount Rushmore, Kevin Costner movies, which I had mentioned last week because I saw Let Him Go. So we'll do that this week around. Um, thank you, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Or as always on Twitter, you can hit me up, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D, or Adnan S. Furk. We did get a tweet chastising me and Joe, saying, how did you not put Stand By Me on your Mount Rushmore Stephen King adaptations? Uh, listen, I saw it when I was like nine. I, I liked it. I, I still remember the image. It sort of horrifies me of the leech and the under, I believe, a Will Wheaton, which is why I just I get terrified of going swimming in creeks and stuff. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't have a reason for it. I just I like those other movies more. I thought it was fine at the time. Maybe if I was, now that I'm 40, I'd watch it again. I'd like it more. But Joe, any thoughts on Stand By Me? Someone was upset we did not include it in the Mount Rushmore. I mean, I, I like it. Don't get me wrong. Great performances. But, uh, you know, when I look for a Stephen King adaptation, I'm, I'm typically going for the more supernatural and horror. You know what I mean? Totally. We're going with Wheelhouse of Stephen King, so... I'm with you. We're not going to give a stand by me the, the thumbs up, at least with regards to the Mount Rushmore of adaptations. Let's do it. Let's get into some movies. By the way, before I do the reviews, I did go back. So as I mentioned, I, I gorged on these movie channels. So I watched like six movies in the last week. Like we're going to review formally Hillbilly Elegy and The Crude's A New Age and Moon. And then the fourth film was Embattled, which is David McKenna's film we're going to talk to him about. But I also watched two other movies this week, taking advantage of the free preview, Get Shorty, which... As you all know, Barry Sonnenfeld, one of the great guests ever, cinephile history. I had seen Get Shorty in a couple of decades. I watched that again. I mean, Dennis Farina is just worth the price of admission. Every single scene, he's amazing. It's Barboni, not Barbone. Hope you spell better than you drive. Um, the scenes where he's just assaulting John Travolta, where he beats up Gene Hackman. I mean, the whole refrain of look at me. You know, no, no, look at me when I'm talking to you. So well done. Scott Frank is the writer and Sonnenfeld. I mean, the directing is so crisp. It's so well-paced. I, mean, I forgot some of the actors. Delroy Lindo, by the way, who's getting well-deserved Oscar recognition for Defy Bloods. He plays the villain in Get Shorty. He's really funny. Gangster wants to go into movies just like John Travolta. And Travolta is one of those guys I'm never convinced. I'm like, I don't know if he's just a movie star who's not a particularly good actor. He's a legitimately good actor. 
But in Get Shorty, like I think it might be his best performance. He's fantastic in the film. He's completely believable as Chili Palmer. He's so smooth and uh, so charming and debonair. Renee Russo, she's a knockout. Hackman, as I've said before, is hilarious in the movie as a, a producer trying to go straight. This is going to be my driving Miss Daisy. The late James Gandolfini plays Bear. He gets thrown down the stairs. I forgot about how he's important to the ending. And you also get Bette Midler making a cameo. I mean, even Harvey Keitel is in the movie. Joe, I don't know the last time you saw Get Shorty, but when we did that interview with Sonnenfeld, I hadn't seen it in a long time. I just knew how much I liked it. Now that I watched it again, I feel like I should be raving more about Get Shorty. Speaking of adaptations of Elmore Leonard novels, brilliant. Yeah, it's a movie that I haven't seen in years. And I I didn't even know until this point that Barry Sonnenfeld... Uh, uh, directed it. Uh, how's Danny DeVito in it? Oh yeah, Danny DeVito. I didn't even mention Danny DeVito. So Sonnenfeld had said to us like he had to have a guy who was such a confident actor and he said Danny DeVito's the most confident person he knows. But him playing Martin Weir, like when he's getting into the character when Travolta's selling him on the movie, he's telling him okay, you've got to play the Shylock and he ends up actually pretending he is Shylock from Merchant of Venice. I mean, he, he's hilarious. Even when he's trying to like, make out with Rene Russo who he's formerly married to. I mean, he's, DeVito's funny, man. What, what an actor. The other film that I watched as well, I hadn't seen it in a couple decades, Swingers. You're so money, you don't even know it. All right? The guy behind the guy. I mean, I could quote all the dialogue without having seen the movie, but I, I watched it again and realized how much I enjoyed it. The chemistry between Mikey and, uh, and Trent and just seeing how young John Favreau and Vince Vaughn are. I mean, it was 24 years ago and they look uh, virtually unrecognizable, like most of us, a lot skinnier uh, back in the day. And, uh, but th- I mean, it's such a great script and it's so funny and charming and surprisingly wise in the ways of the heart. And um, memorable scenes. I mean, it's awfully dated in some ways. The answering machine talking back to him and leaving the message for Nikki, obviously, is an all-time cringeworthy scene. Ron Livingston's really good in the movie as well. Swingers, I tell you, Joe, it's a, it's a little bit before your time. I know you I know you probably weren't even born yet. If you were, you were like five. But Swingers is a great buddy comedy. Oh, it's so great. And and it, it, what sticks out to me is when we had uh, Scott Rydigowski is on, he's talking about you know, swing music craze that hit the mid nineties for like two minutes. And then he dances with, um, Heather Graham on the, on the dance one. They're all just like amazing dancers. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's amazing. You're right. When you watch it, you're like, wait, that was that strange tipping point where Louis Prima, they were using in gap commercials and all of a sudden people were learning how to swing dance. I mean, jump, jive and whale. I mean, the soundtrack's phenomenal. You got big, bad voodoo daddy, you know, you and me and the bottle makes three tonight. Go daddy. Oh, I mean, he's using Dean Martin. I love the one bar they go to. There's pictures of Sinatra. Like, I, I love that these guys are retro hipsters, and they just love that swinger movement. But you're right. It's a very specific time in American history. And uh, the fact that they both know how to just swing dance, I'm like, that's, that's a big climax of the movie. Ugh. If you haven't seen Swingers, Rags Time, Scott Rogowski loves it. I watched it again. I loved it, too. All right. Now to the movies that I didn't love. Hillbilly Elegy. An urgent phone call pulls a Yale law student back to his Ohio hometown where he reflects on three generations of family history and his own future. Hillbilly Elegy is the title. By the way, great title, J.D. Vance's memoir. The title could have just been called Redneck Theater. This just gets all the worst impulses of director Ron Howard, who I love more than anything because he is the narrator of Arrested Development. And let it be said, he's a talented director. I understand that. I I think A Beautiful Mind is a really good movie. I like Cinderella Man, even though it's obviously... um, you know, very sentimental, but I think it's a good boxing film. And he's a talented guy. I mean, for God's sakes, he's Opie. But the worst impulses of him, this movie is so melodramatic. It is so corn-fed with this homespun wisdom that just comes across as so forced and artificial. And it just pours it on thick with, with the, the, the country sayings. And God, it's just after a while, it becomes so grating. And it is filled with a litany of overacting. 
I mean, Amy Adams might be trying to get an Oscar nomination, and she's a great actress, but put on weight for the role and just battling addiction, just screaming for no reason. Glenn Close playing Mamaw. Again, just, just loaded with synthetics. I mean, there's odd glasses and the curly hair and probably a fat suit and old makeup looking wrinkly. She plays Mamma, who you think is the nice, kind grandmother, but she's actually got her own issues as well. She came from early screwed up marriage to J.D. Vance's character. The main character, by the way, that's uh, Gabriel Basso plays him. He's fine in the movie. He's a rather, uh, rather undistinguished actor. I would call him rather vanilla, I think, in the main role, which is not something you want for the main character. I thought Haley Bennett was better as Lindsay playing his sister, but they come from this rural town, okay? They come from this mom, Amy Adams' character, Bev, who is an addict. She's just battling heroin addiction and she's crazy mood swings and I might be bipolar. I mean, just hitting her kid, and it's just awful. This is an awful, awful woman, yet, you know, they're stuck with her because that's their mom. What else are going to do? And like I said, she learned from grandma, who's got her own issues. And so the movie shifts back and forth between J.D., who is now embarking on a rather successful career. He's, he's in Yale Law School, but he's being pulled back to his old hometown because his mom, unfortunately, suffered a relapse, and they got to figure things out. I did like some of the present-day material. Frida Pinto has always beautiful girl from Slumdog Millionaire. Like seeing an Indian actress getting a little love playing Usha. She plays his love interest, who, by the way, I did not realize in, in real life J.D. Vance is married to an uh, Indian-American woman. So th- at least they got that aspect of it right. The fact this guy overcomes rural America ends up uh, being a rather cosmopolitan guy. I mean, Yale Law School marries a woman of a different ethnicity, different faith. But what we learn from this movie is that when you come from a lower middle class upbringing, it's tough to escape that. And he's embarrassed to buy it and he's ashamed of it. And there's a good story in here because I've read the book and the book is excellent because it shows how uh, a lot of people in liberal America, you know, look down on people from these communities and don't realize that they have a lot of qualities that are admirable, like loyalty and perseverance and work ethic. And J.D. knows that without that upbringing, he wouldn't be where he is today. But unfortunately, there comes with these other sides of it. Um, which are obviously very negative and, and dealing with the fact that a woman gets knocked up at 13 and there's no infrastructure to support them. But, but you can't take the country of the boy. He still loves a good fried bologna sandwich. I mean, who doesn't? But the bottom line is this. Hillbilly Elegy is blatant awards bait, and it's getting thumbs down from me. I mean, I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Quite honestly, it was, it was tough to get through at times because it was so predictable and just so overdone, overcooked will be the term I would use for hillbilly elegy. I'm hoping it doesn't get a bunch of Oscar buzz. I mean, the critics have been scathing. It's got 26% Rotten Tomatoes, but the audience is at 84%, so who knows? Maybe it'll get a bunch of Golden Globe nominations. Maybe Amy Adams will get some love, but I was really disappointed, Joe. I think the critics are right. This is a bad movie. Yeah, I normally trust Ron Howard, too. I mean, the, I, the only way I can describe this is, like, I look forward to any sort of pastries and baked goods from my grandma, you know what I mean? And this would be like if I went over to her house and she made just a terrible batch of cookies. To your point, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but there's the whole scene with the dad on fire rolling around. And I think uh, one of the redeeming qualities was that I think it does show poverty in America for a lot of people. You know, there's that scene where he's trying to uh, check her into rehab, but he's like maxing out three separate credit cards in order to do that. And then what did you think of the the structure of the story, you know, with, with young, present time all mixed in together? Yeah, I didn't think it worked, Joe. Normally, I'm a fan of nonlinear storytelling because I just think it's unpredictable and it can add different elements to it rather than tell a, a conventional story beginning, middle, end. I like the fact when, especially a guy like Quentin Tarantino can jumble with structure so well, but he does so in an artful manner. Here, I just found it uh, unnecessary. You know, here's a, 
a bright spot of uh, mom. But actually, there's any bright spots. Yeah, okay, here she is, hooked on drugs again. Okay, let's go back. So, so grandma hooked on drugs. Okay, let's go back to present day. Oh, I don't want to call my girlfriend. Okay, let me go talk to my sister. Like they, they really just had no rhythm to it. And I agree with you. These stories should be told. And I, I agree with you. That, that scene where he's trying to put everything on the credit card, that's a good scene showing how abject poverty can impact somebody. But, but there's better movies out there which showcase this kind of subject matter. Yeah, 100% agree. While watching it, I was found myself getting distracted on my phone. And to your point, kind of just because it was predictable, I kind of knew what was going to happen. The middle act with, you know, him trying to navigate his relationship with his mom and, and mom and Glenn Close's character. You know, it it when I'm on Reddit reading random articles, that's never a good sign for a movie. <laughs> So watch Hillbilly Algae on Netflix, but only if you have Reddit handy to get you through the slow parts. Other reviews, Richard Brody of New Yorker with his soupy, impersonal manipulations of memory and experience, void of the burrs that attach them to the world at large. Howard, whether intentionally or not, has made a libertarian's fantasy and Darren Franich of Entertainment Weekly. Howard thinks he's making an inspirational tale. He doesn't realize it's an American horror story. One and a half Maple Leafs once again for Hillbilly Elegy. I'll do a quick review of The Croods before I want to talk about Moon. Croods, sequel, all right? A new age in theaters. That's right. Every once in a while, we still get a movie in theaters, and I'm relishing that opportunity. Only the fourth film I've seen in theaters since March 11th. Searching for a safer habitat, the prehistoric crude family discovers an idyllic, walled-in paradise that meets all of its needs. Unfortunately, they must also learn to live with the Bettermans, a family that's a couple steps above the Croods on the evolutionary ladder. As tensions between the new neighbors start to rise, a new threat soon propels both clans on an epic adventure that forces them to embrace their differences, draw strength from one another, and survive together. Excellent voice work from the likes of Nicolas Cage, Emma Stone, Ryan Reynolds, Catherine Keener. Who doesn't love Cloris Leachman? You got Leslie Mann and Peter Dinklage, who plays Phil Betterman. Love Peter Dinklage. Uh, It's a good kids movie. My boys enjoyed it. It's got bright, colorful animation, funny storytelling, particularly when they realize throwing a bunch of bananas to a monkey is a bad idea when there's an army of monkeys. Uh, Chris Hewitt of Minneapolis Star Tribune. It's a conventional animated movie, but it's funny and sweet. And it's not like every animated movie needs to reinvent the wheel. That's a very succinct way of me agreeing with it. Here's the more important point I wanted to make. I like to hammer people about the uh, price of movie tickets. You've heard me lament and uh, gesticulate wildly about this. Well, how about the AMC in Wayne, New Jersey? I went on Friday afternoon, took three of my four boys, Price of tickets, I mean, listen, a Friday weekday matinee, you're just stealing money. $25.66 to see a movie in a movie theater with reclining seats. Sign me up. At concessions, a large popcorn, three slushies, $30. Yeah, okay, well, fine. They're going to gouge you in the concessions. But a free refill on the popcorn. Now, before you get the free refill, now they go, well, because of COVID, we'll just give you a brand new box rather than, you know, refill your used uh, carton of popcorn. So, listen. Joe, you could do a lot worse than for 55 bucks going to see the Croods, reclining seats, popcorn and slushies. That's a win. Oh, 100%. And I'm, I'm sure all these you know deals are coming out because of COVID and they're trying to incentivize people to come back. But I'm glad. I mean, what do your boys think of being in the theater? Oh, they loved so it. I mean, they just love the reclining seats and they're laughing at all the jokes and the one-liners. I mean, the different ages here, 12, 9, and 4. But that's a movie that can appeal to all three of those guys. So it was... Uh, it was a welcome break from just eating so much turkey. So that's a win there. I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs there for the Croods, A New Age. The last film before we get into some entertainment news, and don't forget David McKenna is on the way. He's a great guest, I promise. A screenwriter with really funny stories is Moon, 2009. Never saw it, finally did, and I'm really glad I did. Because Sam Rockwell is one of our most 
interesting and versatile talents right now working in American movies, and he brings the heat once again. Astronaut Sam Bell's three-year shift in the lunar mine is finally coming to an end, and he's looking forward to his reunion with his wife and young daughter. Suddenly, Sam's health takes a drastic turn for the worse. He suffers painful headaches and hallucinations and almost has a fatal accident. He meets what appears to be a younger version of himself, possibly a clone. With time running out, Sam must solve the mystery before the company crew arrives. I mean, just a remarkable performance by Rockwell. I mean, a remarkable set of performances, because he's not only playing the main role, but then that clone who shows up, or is it a clone? And so he's now he's playing dual roles. And I thought Rockwell really embodied the vulnerability here of an astronaut. I mean, you, you think about jobs you'd, you'd love to have or hate to have. I got to tell you, astronaut, bottom of the list for me, okay? I'm terribly claustrophobic. I don't want to be stuck in this cell. You can't go get some air. I mean, even though it's this huge capsule you're in, it's just a miserable existence. Three years of relying on video messages which have been taped or sent by his wife. And you just have to just amuse yourself. I mean, it's just an awful existence. And I thought that Rockwell was really beautifully captured that sense of loneliness, that void in his life, and also the anger that like, just bubbles at the surface when you think that the organization that sent you there is actually screwing you over and they don't have your uh, best intentions at heart. And really, how do you showcase a guy losing his mind with hallucinations and such? And I thought Rockwell did an amazing job of that. Like I said, vulnerability really was the key for me. As this guy physically deteriorates before your eyes, you see the mental deterioration as well. It's a hell of a performance. It's the best reason to watch Moon. I wouldn't have been surprised if you told me Christopher Nolan directed this because it's got a lot of those heady themes. And I think if you're into science fiction, if you liked Interstellar, if you liked Gravity, Moon is definitely a worthy companion with those. I remember at the time in 09, he was getting some Oscar buzz, did not get nominated, which is why I didn't see it. But shame on me. I, uh, I'm glad I finally did see it. Kevin Spacey plays the voice. At first, I thought it was a bit too much of a ripoff to HAL 9000, but I was able to overcome that... Uh, feeling. And ultimately, I think Moon is a really haunting piece of work anchored by a, a virtuoso performance by Sam Rockwell. And who directed it, Joe? You saw it years ago and you gave me this tidbit. It's Duncan Jones, the son of David Bowie, which I mean, as far as source materials goes, if your dad's a literal star man, then, you know, you got to make a good space movie. <laughs> Gonna say, like father, like son, both out there when it comes to that tip. If you haven't seen Moon, Check it out. A couple of reviews for you. Bob Mondello. Start calculating the cost to lunar industries of its singular form of devaluing, and Moon's central premise stops making sense. Ouch. Um, Paul Burns of Sydney Morning Herald. There might even be a touch of his father in there. Your circuit's dead. There's something wrong. Can you hear me, Major Tom? It is a well-built, concentrated movie with a brain and a purpose. Check out Moon. I'm going to give it three and a half Maple Leafs. Movie that I'm really glad I saw from 11 years ago. Thanks to DirecTV for the free preview. Entertainment news where we get to our guest, David McKenna. Ken Jennings, who is the first Jeopardy guest host. He will be the first guest host, officials announced. Announcement coming two weeks after Al Trebek died of pancreatic cancer on November 8th. Uh, additional guest hosts will be announced at a later time. The production began this week, in fact. So November 30th, they started uh, production here on some new shows. And I saw some news about Dave Chappelle trending. and wasn't really sure what was going on. And here's what it is. When he took to the stage to host Saturday Night Live earlier this month, he started off his monologue talking to his great-grandfather, a man who had been a slave for 10 years. He said he had been thinking about him and his story not because of Trump or the election. It was because Netflix and HBO Max had just picked up streaming rights to his iconic Comedy Central series, Chappelle Show, and he didn't get any money out of the deal. Now, because of a request from Chappelle himself, Netflix has agreed to pull Chappelle's show from a streaming platform after only a few weeks 24 days to be exact since it first became available. 
Chappelle offering insight into the situation with an Instagram video posted today called Unforgiven, in which he told the crowd instances in his life people have taken his work without compensating him fairly. And he says that when he heard Netflix had picked up his show, he was furious because he has an existing relationship with Netflix through his recent stand-up specials. The show is still on HBO Max, but Chappelle is not done. In the video, he asks his fans to stop watching Chappelle's show and streaming services, saying they don't need to boycott any companies in general, but that they should boycott him. What a crazy story, Joe. I'm of two minds of it, too. I don't, I don't know where you stand, but like a part, a part of me, you know, if someone is making money off of his likeness and his original material and content, then he should be compensated. At the same time, he kind of signed a contract. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I listen, I just love the fact it's a great show. I love being able to, to share your work with people. But I do agree with you. Hey, man, he's the artist. Bonnie. He feels he's been screwed. And particularly as a relationship with Netflix, he's been doing these stand-up specials. But, I mean, listen, he got compensated a ton of money. We all know that. Millions and millions of dollars for these Netflix comedy specials. But I, I understand his frustration. Hey, man, I made this. Um, and the fact that the company did this make him feel bad. And I guess, listen, credit to Netflix. I mean, the fact that they actually listened and said, okay, fine, we'll get rid of it for you. That, that shows that in this case, the artist has all the power. Coming up next, after the break, writer of the new film, Embattled, David McKenna. He's also got stories about American History X and Blow, plus the Mount Rushmore of Kevin Costner movies. promised a real pleasure to talk to david mckenna his new film uh, embattled is terrific stars stephen dorf set in, in the world of the ufc fighting father versus son lots of internal conflicts and he's also the writer of american history x blow and several other films which we'll get into david first and foremost thank you for the time really appreciate it and then great to be here man thank you for having me on i'm gonna dive right in because i enjoyed the movie and particularly i love the dialogue that you wrote i've written down some of these lines which are so entertaining and so funny. So to give some backstory, Stephen Dorff plays the UFC fighter. I don't know if you based him at all on Conor McGregor, but he's got a bit of that feel to him. You know, likes playing the heel. Uh, obviously in incredible shape. We'll get into that in a second. Dorff, I mean, for a guy, he really transformed himself. But one of these guys plays the heel, right? He's beaten up on his son. He likes being a loud mouth, likes making comments. I'm going to read a few lines of dialogue here. This is how funny this was. He's talking about a flight attendant to his son and says, she's a tasty piece of hair pie. Later, he discusses how mad he is. He says, they're giving it to me up the dirt chute. He refers to his son as a turd burglar. Uh, when discussing the fact he grew up in a black community, he said, sometimes the homies went Reginald Denny on my ass. And, and also later when telling his son how to drunk drive appropriately, he says, liberal homos love to call 911. I mean, I, I know you are not this guy. So tell me how you got into writing this character because those lines are awfully entertaining and obviously fit the character. Um, well, I mean, when you find a character like that, you just kind of grab hold of them. You know, you find the character, like with American History X, uh, you find Derek, and he's just this this uh, this gnarly skinhead, and you can't get away from it. And so when um, I I found this ca this character Cash, you know, you just you don't you don't go seven out of ten with him. You go twelve out of ten. And I just reached back into my uh, into my brain about how can I make this one of the greatest villains, if you will, in in history. I mean, you always aim high. You know, I, I probably didn't get there. I know I didn't get there. I'm not saying this is the greatest 
villain of all time, but I mean, he, he's just a great character and you always want to take stuff to the extreme, especially when it comes to MMA, which is extreme fighting. And so, um, you know, I just reached back into my dialogue and, uh, you know, I have a bunch of friends and, and, uh, we go at each other just like guys do. And you, you just remember great dialogue from the past. And, uh, and, uh, you know, what you said there is, um, just a portion of, I think of some, <laughs> I think, I think this is probably some of my best lines, uh, ever in, in screenwriting. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of this movie. And like you said, Steven, he's a, he, he's just a great character. And, and also Darren, who's Canadian. Nice. Um, he, he, uh, he, uh, you know, Darren is just the heart of the movie and, and my son is in the movie too. And so, yeah, I mean, just, you know, but I'm glad you appreciate the dialogue. Oh, no question. I mean, the, the one specific exchange <laughs> at the, uh, at the, um, not the way in the press conference is when he says, I could really use a hand job. And someone says, that's sexual harassment. He says, no, <laughs> lick me where I shit. That's sexual harassment. <laughs> you know what really pisses me off about that scene is, uh, and Nick, the director, didn't get it, is, and I, I complained about it over and over, is he's supposed to be drinking the Bloody Mary there. You know, so we should have done an insert of the Bloody Mary. I love the fact that he shows up to the press conference in the, the hotel robe with the slippers you know, and he has a Bloody Mary. And then that night you see him and he's still in that hotel room, <laughs> hotel room with the slippers, you know. And I did take I did take a lot of Chuck Liddell, too, from this character. You know, um, if you go on YouTube, you could see Chuck Liddell and um, he, he's in an interview. It's a morning show. I forget what morning show. It's like a North Dakota morning show or something like that. And he starts to fall asleep on the, on the host. And the host goes, hey, Chuck, you awake? You know, and he wakes up. He literally, as he's being interviewed, falls asleep during the morning show on TV. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so, about right for Chuck so Liddell. I, yeah. So I took, so I took a little bit from that with Cash. I mean, he's just, you know, when you think about these characters, yeah, of course, there's there, there's McGregor references. I didn't want to be McGregor that much because I felt that was too obvious. But you know, you can't get around it. No, no question. The, the only time I really thought of McGregor was when uh, Stevens wearing the three-piece suit, and it looks like kind of that you know Scottish-Irish look. And I said, okay, there, there's right. the only time I really actually said, okay, he's kind of channeling McGregor. But other than that, I, I think you did a good job of creating a really original character. Uh, I've met Stephen Dorp before on the late night uh, in the streets of Toronto. I was out with some buddies, and he was jawing with somebody who was chirping him. It was actually very amusing now that I see him in this role because somebody was chirping him for some reason. He was with a girl, and he kind of fired back at the guy, and then we kind of went up. We're like, oh my god. Stephen Dorff were big fans of yours, and he was really nice to us. And he and I share the same birthday, so I always remember the fact he was in a verbal altercation with somebody. We have the same birthday, and I, I, I just think he's had a terrific resurgence lately. Particularly True Detective season three, he was excellent yeah. alongside with Mahershala Ali. And now I see him in this role, and I said, "Wow, it's a great script you wrote." But I think he's a really special actor, and this performance he gives, as you said, you, you're really playing a monstrous character. I mean, this is a guy looking to just inflict violence on everyone. He's had spousal abuse issues. You see a scene of that with his second wife. He's looking to beat up his kid in the ring. Like, I mean, this is one of these like characters that either you're going to be able to buy it or not. And I thought Dorf was completely convincing, and he's in incredible shape. I, I don't know how old he is, but I'm watching this going, okay, dude, I don't know how he got into shape like this, but he looks so convincing. Tell it to me about Stephen Dorf. You know, I think he deserves an Oscar nomination. I really do. I, I, I have not seen any performance that masters this. Um, he's 
He's been a journeyman actor. He's been a great actor for so many years. I mean, you remember the power of one? He was 17 years old. I remember being in L.A., uh, and I, I just got up to LA. I was just, you know, the struggling screenwriter. And I see Steven smoking cigarettes with Jack Nicholson at the standard, you know, hotel, you know, and when he was 22, I think he was shooting blood and wine or something along those lines. I forget what it was, but, uh, the guy's just been acting forever. And then, you know, so when he read for this and I, and listen to his voice, I mean, he has the best voice and, um, and he just, I go, that's cash. And uh, uh, we, we were entertaining another actor at the time. I'm not going to say who it was, but we really casted the part. Nick, the director, uh, really casted who he wanted, who was going to be best, not who was the bigger actor. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, Stephen, you know, I mean, the guy just kills it. And um, I love him. He's a, he's a great friend. We talk all the time. He loves my son. I don't know if you know my, my, my special needs son plays Colin in the movie, the younger son, uh, Darren's brother. That's my son. And, um, and he just treats Colin. He loves Colin. We talk on the phone all the time, Stephen and I, and he's, he's funny as hell. He have, he heckles. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. I mean, he's a feisty dude and we go back and forth and, you know, he's, a, he'll be a friend for life. Um, because he, he, you know, I like to use the phrase, um, beat the page, you know, he took what I wrote and he made it better. And, uh, whenever you have those situations, Adnan, they're rare. And, uh, uh, Norton did it with American history X, Johnny did it with blow, you know, but all my other movies, you know, you know, I felt like, you know, I was, I was disappointed, you know? And so, uh, um, you know, Steven is just, I'm, I'm so happy for him, you know, and I think this is his best performance. I think he's better in this than, than true detective. I get the true detective comparisons, but this is, it's a monster performance and, uh, and I'm just happy for him. I couldn't agree more, man. I think so much of movies is casting, and I thought he was cast really well, and uh, it was a knockout. There's no question about it. We're talking right now with David McKenna. The film is called Embattled. I want everyone to watch it. It's streaming online now. YouTube, Amazon Prime, wherever you rent your movies, check out Embattled. Like I said, it's a great uh, sports film and also a great father and son story, and that brings us to your son. Shout out to Darren Mann. As you said, Canadian, he plays Jet Boykins, and he's excellent. But the fact that your son is in the movie, and as you said, he suffers from Williams' disease, and I was, uh, you know, an issue that I had no idea what it really was about, but I thought he was terrific in the movie because whenever you see someone who's special needs, your first thought always is, okay, are they acting or do they actually do have special needs? And like you said, you were smart enough to say, well, my son has it. He can play the role, and he can be authentic. And you also gave him a couple of great lines, including, do some girls have wieners? And later when he asked his brother, what about <laughs> anal? Yeah, you know, I mean, Colin is a, he's a teenager like everybody else. And, you know, he's really advanced um, uh, for having special needs. And, um, you know, when I was writing the script, I, I felt like uh, Darren, you know, the story, the movie is kind of Darren's a little bit, Jets. And, you know, I felt like, he could use a little brother and then I go, okay, special needs brother. And then I go, okay, well, who knows this world better than I do mean. And I thought it would give a little of mice and men element to, um, you know, to the whole saga. 
and uh, it ended up working. And I wrote it when, when Colin was in seventh grade. And so by the time we're ready to cast it, he's in ninth grade. And I didn't even really think about him. I mean, I thought about him a little bit um, to, to play the part, but then he, but then the director, Nick goes, get him in here to read. And Colin goes in to read. And, and my wife, my wife took him up and, and he was really nervous at first. And he literally asked for a break and Nick goes, yeah, take a break. So Colin went outside, came back in, and then he just crushed it. And Nick hired him. And, and then my wife and, and Colin moved to, uh, to Birmingham for six weeks while I took care of my other two kids here. And, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, he, I'm so proud of him. And the, the fact is, is that, um, the fact that you can do a movie with your son and, and it's just really special and I'll never forget it. Uh, there's no question about it. And you have a lot of, uh, pride and I think for good reason because he not only gives a terrific performance but he's funny and he's charming and, and I, I like that idea like I said the uh, Mice and Men element because some of this film is just so brutal and so vicious uh, you know epitomized yeah. by Cash Boykins you kind of need that soft spot with this character who kind of uh, you know lightens it up a little bit. Once again the movie is called Embattled it is streaming online now YouTube, Amazon Prime wherever you rent your movies. David you've had a terrific career which you touched on a little bit so if you don't mind I'd love to ask you a little bit about American History X. I remember that it was such a powerful film. You wrote and sold it when you were 26 years of age and I understand it drew from your upbringing around the punk music scene as well as some interviews with real skinheads. I think it's unfortunate because Part of movie lore, it become about the post-production dispute with Tony Kay, the director, and Edward Norton, and, and that back and forth. But the movie in its own merit is certainly powerful and unforgettable, and I, I give credit to you for coming up with that idea. How hard was that to write? Yeah, I mean, I, I, had, just, I had moved up to L.A., and I was living in L.A. for a couple of years. I started writing when I was in college, and I had written uh, three screenplays before American History X, and I couldn't sell them. And then... Um, and then uh, I, 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 you know, Mississippi Burning was always a, a top favorite of mine, but I knew that there were skinheads uh, that, that, that it needed to be modernized. And uh, I knew a little bit about skinheads. I'd seen some in Huntington Beach and some in San Diego. And, um, and uh, like you said, when I, was, when I was 12, 13, I was really into punk rock music, and the punkers used to fight the mods down in, on uh, down by the uh, Babo Island Pier, down where I live in Newport Beach. And uh, and then the Cuckoo's Nest was a big, big huge club in Costa Mesa um, uh, that I was familiar with. Um, so, you, can, you, you know, and so I thought that, hey, I'll take this skinhead and I'll kind of develop my own personal type things and I'll make it about race, you know. Um, and at the time, the Rodney King stuff was going on and... I just really wanted to create this skinhead character, but I want to make him a little bit different. I want to make him smart. And, um, and, uh, and then obviously I thought, I thought of the character arc and I thought, okay, well, what's a bigger character arc to have this skinhead that you despise go through a transformation and then you, you actually kind of like him and are rooting for him at the end. I thought that that was a really great challenge for me as a writer. And so I had the character. I came up with the name Derek Vineyard. Names are so crucial. You know, they really sort of, they really, you know, I, I think a lot about names. And, and when I had that name, I really started to go after it. And um, I wrote the script in six weeks. You know, I had a buddy. This is a funny little story. I had a buddy who was a screenwriter. 
I mean, when I moved up to LA, I didn't know anybody. And so, um, but I, then one of my friends moved up and, and, and I gave him the first draft of the script. I think the first draft was maybe 89 pages. And, um, and I'd had trouble selling, like I told you. And, um, so I get a call at three o'clock in the morning and I just, I just knew it was my buddy. And I pick up the phone and, and, he, and I go, hello. And he goes, this is it. This is the one, this is it, you know? And so from there I got pumped and I, you know, I beefed up the script. I put about 20 more pages on it and just developed characters more and seen more. And, and, uh, you know, it worked out. It was, uh, a really, uh, uh, you know, we got very, very fortunate. Um, I know you're probably going to ask me about Tony and Edward and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the weird thing was, is, is Tony, myself and Edward, I was, that was the only movie that I've been on the set the entire time that I've ever done. Um, I was hanging out in Edward's trailer. Edward's a very meticulous guy. You know, he wanted me to rewrite lines here and there. Tony, myself and Edward were very collaborative. It was a great process. Um, when we got into the editing room, Tony had a lot of trouble finding the movie and uh, he'd come out of commercials and it just, you know, we knew the movie that we'd shot and Tony was just really having a tough time. We gave him a lot of time to try and figure it out. And, um, I knew that I didn't have any power. I was just, you know, this was my first movie, but you know, I knew that Edward was a very, very smart guy and he got the movie and, and, uh, um, I put all my uh, efforts behind Edward to try and, you know, fix this. And Edward t- took a lot of crap for this, and, and it's very wrong. Edward really, truly was the backbone to this movie, both, you know, in front of the camera and behind the camera in many ways. And um, and uh, and he didn't do it to try and, uh, you know, use some power trick. You know, it was like rescuing you know, a kid from an abusive father. That's how Mike DeLuca put it one time. I think that was a perfect way to put it. You know, Tony's a great director. He's, he's very talented, amazing with the camera, but he just couldn't find the movie in the editing room. He tried to get all tricky. And then once you start going down that tricky road, it's kind of hard to go back. What Edward did was recut the script. That's all he did. And so, uh, but you know, it was, it was, you know, it turned out to be, you know, I, I'm glad so many people loved the movie. Could have been better, absolutely. You know, but um, you know, we got away with it. <laughs> and many times, many times, that's how movies work. And just like with everything else. And so, uh, you know, they could be a lot better, and they could be a lot worse. And so, uh, with with American History X, we got sort of lucky. I got to tell you. Uh, no question. And listen, luck is opportunity meets talent. So I think you're being humble. It's a terrific film. I got, I'll never forget that curbside stomp. I'm like, that was unbelievable seeing the mouth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, God, it was uh, it was tough was to watch. I was very angry. I was very angry back then. I was very angry back then. I think that I was fighting with my now wife or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> At least you have the art with it to express that. I want to also ask you about Blow, which... A terrific film. Listen, it's all about George uh, Jung there, the, uh, played by Johnny Depp, this cocaine dealer. And what was amazing about that movie is you say, okay, I've seen drug movies before, but it really kind of detailed the rise and fall of this guy and just how he was really good at it. Like he just he was just a really successful businessman and this cocaine smuggler who just was really had a sharp mind for it. And 
the part that I really resonated with me when I think about the movie is how much I love Ray Liotta's character. Because it's like, as a dad, you know this, like there's there's nothing that um, tops the joy you have in your children. And I thought that Liotta was so great at portraying that, you know what? Hey, like he's my son. Like, I fine, he's a drug dealer, but I love my son more than anything. And I'm proud of him for what he's accomplished. And like nothing will ever take away that love. I thought it was a really smart way of showcasing that. I credit your writing for coming up with that character and the way you, you wrote Liotta's character. Yeah, I mean, the thing was is that the book is so amazing, and all that stuff's in the book. You know, I mean, this was a this was a, an adaptation, and you know, just the relationship with his father, and you know, this is you know what what attracts me so much is just in every character is just those flawed type people, you know, and um, and with with uh, with George, you know, who I met you know several times, and I used to talk to George. Used to call my house like every other day from prison, collect. So I had to pay for all the calls. And, um, but, you know, he was just a, a wealth of information and, and it was really helpful when, when I was writing the script. And then, you know, the, then the, just the relationship with his, his dad was very special and, and his mom was very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, he just didn't believe in the laws that govern society. He, you know, he didn't believe that, you know, what's the big deal about bringing some plants across the border? You know, and I mean, it was that hippie mentality and he couldn't shake it. And he ended up spending a lot of prison time because of that attitude. And um, that's just the, the, the bottom line. You know, he was, you know, he was Bob Dylan. He was he quoted, you know, he was very he, he's a poet. George is a poet. And and uh, so it was a really interesting character. And, yeah, I love the relationship with his dad and uh you know, all the characters in there in the book. The book is amazing if you ever get a chance to read it um, by Bruce Porter. And uh, I read it um, in two days. And uh, and I just basically said, who do I have to screw to do this movie, you know? And uh, and uh, so it was an honor to do that movie for sure. <laughs> the answer is Ted Demi. No, uh, <laughs> definitely check out Blow. Yeah, it's a- well, God rest his soul. Yeah. God rest his soul. I know. A terrific film. Last one I want to ask you. Once again, we're talking with David McKenna. The film is called Embattled. It is streaming online now, YouTube, Amazon Prime, wherever you write your movies. Last one I want to ask you about is Bully. Because I remember seeing the movie, and whenever you think of Larry Clark, you just think, oh, he's the guy that makes those controversial movies with a lot of like uncomfortable teen nudity. Most famously, Kids, which was written by Harmony Kareen. I remember Bully was like an extension of that in that, again, it was very dark subject matter, and it was about... You know, again, teens up to no good. What I want to ask you is this. It's, it's awfully rare that somebody is unhappy with the product, so much so that you chose to be credited under the pseudonym Zachary Long. What was it specifically? <laughs> I, I, I don't dispute the fact you had, were unhappy or reasonably unhappy. I mean, that, that's your own issue. But to me, the fact that you were so unhappy, you said, I'm taking my name off the picture. What was it that, that frustrated you so much? Well, I read the book, and I was a huge fan of, of Larry. And Larry was up for directing American History X. Um, before Tony got it. And so when I read Bully and I wrote the script, I, I immediately wanted to go to Larry because of kids. And um, we're getting ready to shoot $2 million budget. I moved out to, I lived, I, I, I didn't move out to, I just stayed in New York for about a week, week and a half. And Larry and I just went tooth and nail, page by page over the Bully script. And, you know, the marching orders were clear. You know, shoot the script, you know, uh, it's all there. Um, and then, 
um, with many times, and this has happened, is, you know, slowly but surely, things start to fall apart. And um, and with Larry, I don't know what it was. Um, I wasn't a fan of the casting of it. Um, uh, I wrote a big, long letter to some of the producers that it felt like a porno, you know, with the bad acting. And I didn't like – there's many suggestive – porno shots that that for some reason Larry feels like he has to do and because Larry's so talented there's no need to do these gratuitous cross shots and all that and I was just watching the movie and I'm going what the hell is he doing and at the time I don't know I'd, ha- I'd had another bad movie come out you know what I've had enough of this shit and um I just said I don't want my daughter to know that I'm associated with crotch shots and you know, stuff that where there's literally pornographic, pornographic suggestions in that. That's not who I am as a person. And at the time, I just had enough, and I just said, you know what? I'm taking my damn name off this thing. I don't want to be associated with it. Um, and people thought I was crazy, you know, because people really liked the movie. Um, but I was, you know, I was, I was pretty pissed off, you know. Larry, uh, you know, I trusted Larry, and I, I still think he's an amazingly talented guy. You know, he's an incredible photographer. But I just felt sort of betrayed. And um, and sometimes that happens when you're a writer. You know, if I, if I don't like it, you know, I better go off and direct. You know, but I, I don't like right now. I don't I don't feel like directing, I, I, you know, so um, and I, I will someday probably. But, um, uh, you know, and that was basically the bottom line to it. I, I just had enough of it. Well, listen, you can never put a price tag on integrity. So I, I give you full credit for saying, you know what? I'm not comfortable with this. I think it's BS and, and that's the end of it. So. Um, I, I could see your friends be like, no, dude, it's a credit. Come on. Like, this is just, it's just your name on the picture. Like, that's an important thing. But I, I think that, that speaks volumes with the kind of person you are. That you, say, you know what? I'm not cool with this. So screw it. Zachary Long it is. That's going to be the writer of Bully moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, I, I, think I, I think I was at a bar and I go, I just turned to some guy. I was probably pretty hammered at the time. And I go, hey, give me a name. Give me any name. And the guy looks at me and he goes, Zachary Long. And I go, hey, that's great. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. Like the pseudonym, either I would say, okay, I'll put my best friend on it and say, hey, buddy, you can pretend you wrote the movie. Or I'd pick my biggest enemy because I was so disgusted with the movie. I'd pick somebody I think is vile. That That's hilarious. That's how you came up with the name. <laughs> well, well, the funny thing, and the funny thing was, is just I, I had just taken my name off of Mark. My wife and I are, are sitting there watching Siskel and Ebert that night, and the movie gets too enthusiastic, thumbs up. It was super funny, you know. And um, but uh, she, she, Mark, my wife agreed to me wholeheartedly with taking my name off of it, so it was all good. No, it is all great, and so is this film. Embattled, I encourage everyone to check it out. David McKenna, as you can tell, it's a terrific guy and a hugely talented guy. He is the writer of this and obviously those other great works that we were talking about. I mean, there's lots more we could get into. SWAT, you also wrote, other movies of that ilk. Honestly, I'm just so grateful for the time, man. I'm terrific that I saw the movie, and it really, I could tell the personal appeal for it. Like you said, not only is it something that you wrote about and knew that world at UFC, but having your son in it, I, I can't imagine how proud you are. And congrats, David. Seriously, great, great stuff. Adam, it was great. Hey, one, one quick thing. You can also see it on Apple TV, buddy, okay? I, I, will, I will hammer that at the start of the podcast. Embattled, streaming online. Apple TV, YouTube, Amazon Prime, wherever you get it. I, I appreciate you getting the word out there. And shout out to Marcy McKenna, by the way, sliding into my DMs on Instagram. She's the one that made this happen. She's the best.
Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks once again to David McKenna. He was awesome. Check out Embattled. Mount Rushmore, Kevin Costner movies, because I talked about Let Him Go last week. You go through his career, Fandango in 85, Silverado in 85, all of a sudden becomes a huge star. It's actually a fairly straightforward list, because as many hits as he's had, he's also had some duds. We don't always have to do a Mount Rushmore of the worst films of Kevin Costner's career, because listen, we all know Waterworld is making the cut. We all know The Postman is making the cut. Even in the last stretch, I mean, McFarland, USA, not sure your thoughts on Draft Day. I thought Hidden Figures was overrated. His performance wasn't particularly noteworthy. Molly's Game, good role, small role. He had the voice and the art of racing in the rain. I mean, there's been a lot of movies over the years ago. Wow, Kevin Costner, what are we doing? But let's focus on the greatness of Kevin Costner, okay? The Untouchables, as a straight arrow, Elliot Ness. He's smart because he's able to let Sean Connery chew the scenery, win an Oscar from Malone. Robert De Niro, obviously very powerful as Al Capone. But Costner, he's, listen, man, he's the star of the movie, and he holds it together with star power and that uh, Boy Scouts determination to finally put Capone away. Field of Dreams, one of my favorite baseball movies. I know it's nostalgic, but I think it's sweet, it's tender, it's great writing by Phil Alden Robinson, adapting W.P. Kinsella's book. And obviously, if you love baseball as much as I do, you're going to be a fan of something like Field of Dreams. I thought Costner really embodied that guy because he looks like an athlete. Listen, there's no secret. He's great in baseball movies, whether it's Bull Durham or uh, For Love of the Game. I think Field of Dreams is his best. But I don't want to go all baseball movies on you, so I want to find some different ones. So we go with Untouchables, and we're going to go with Field of Dreams. I'm not going to go with Bull Durham, even though that would be perhaps a more obvious choice. I mean, he's really good as Crash Davis. There's no doubt about it. Um, I don't want to go with Dances with Wolves because I find that movie frustrating, although I realize that it's iconic in many ways to him specifically. So after that, it gets, it gets trickier for me. I'm going to go with 13 Days, because I think that's an underrated movie, all about uh, JFK. Remember uh, Bruce McDonald, the great Canadian actor? He is in that movie playing JFK, and I think it's a great performance, and I thought Coster was really good in that. And maybe I'll go with a little more political feel as well. How about JFK? Only because it's an iconic Oliver Stone film that I'm going to go with a mention there as well. So my Mount Rushmore, Kevin Costner movies. I mean, his role is Jim Garrison, three-hour-plus movie in JFK. That's in Field of Dreams, Ray Kinsella. The Untouchables is Elliot Ness. And 13 Days, that's my sleeper pick. I wanted to give 13 Days some love. He plays Kenny O'Donnell. It's directed by Roger Donaldson. That's in. And by the way, on, on, the, on the all-time worst movies, 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Like, what are we doing? Message in a bottle. I mean, there's been some bad movies along the years. I know the one glaring uh, omission is Tin Cup, but I got to make one honorable mention. So Tin Cup is the honorable mention. Also honorable mention to A Perfect World, rare character he played a villain playing Butch Haynes, Clint Eastwood movie, underrated, underseen. I did like that movie a lot, but that's my Mount Rushmore. Joe, what do you got? All right. Well, The Untouchables out of the way. I'll agree with you on that. And I will also do Field of Dreams for... It's nostalgia. I also found out, apparently uh, Twitter put something together where they looked at the most reviled tourist attractions in every state, and the Field of Dreams Field is apparently the most reviled tourist attraction in Iowa. Um, so that that's fun for the people of Iowa. Uh, after that, you're right, this movie should not have won Best Picture. He should not have uh, gotten Best Director, but I will throw Dances with Wolves on there. Um, just for the sake of it. And then, if you're not going to do Bull, uh, Bull Durham, I will. The The movie's great. Susan Sarandon and him. But shout out to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I watched that movie a ton growing up. So that's definitely on my honorable mention. So my four are Field of Dreams, The Untouchables, 
Bull Durham, and Dances with Wolves. I love it. Shout out to Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a movie that's been seen a lot. I, I did love Alan Rickman as the sheriff of Nottingham. He's just a terrific villain in that movie. Morgan Freeman shout out as well. All right. That's our Mount Rushmore. Kevin Costner. Thanks once again to David McKenna. Avoid Hillbilly Elegy. Go watch Embattled instead. We got lots of movies coming up, okay? On the weeks ahead here on Cinephile, we'll be reviewing Mank from David Fincher. I believe that's due out this Friday on Netflix. Can't wait to watch Nomad Land. That's a huge Oscar contender with Francis McDormand directed by Chloe Jaw. That's coming out here in December. Later in the month, we got Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Viola Davis might win Best Actress. Chadwick Boseman getting Oscar buzz for that August Wilson adaptation later in the month, One Night Miami from Regina King. So listen, December, we've got a ton of great movies coming out. Uh, those reviews and more. I also recorded The Gentleman. I'll review that movie. came out in January 2020. So look forward to talking about that Hugh Grant, Guy Ritchie movie. And if you haven't seen them yet, go watch The Undoing. I, I watched this final episode. You can binge watch all six episodes. I thought it was an excellent, excellent show. Uh, really well written by David E. Kelly. Well acted by Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. I thought the finale was solid. I know it got some heat on Twitter. People were upset about it. Oh, what a surprise. People mad on social media. And of course, Fargo. 11 episodes of season four. I've got it as my second favorite season behind season one, but another great accomplishment from Noah Hawley. Watch Fargo, watch The Undoing, watch Embattled, and I'll see you at the movies.